Angelus Domini, nun sia vit Grazia plena Dominus Tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Hello and welcome to the Liturgical Looking Glass, a program that looks at the Church's liturgy for the week ahead. I'm Tim Hutchinson. I'm Nick Swarbrick, and today on the Liturgical Looking Glass, we're going to be looking further into the music and liturgy of Lent. And we'll be looking at Lent Week 5, Cycle A, and of course tomorrow's Solemnity, Lady Day, the Feast of the Annunciation. Tim, do you want to start us off with a prayer? I do indeed. By your help we beseech you, Lord our God. May we walk eagerly in that same charity with which, out of love for the world, your Son handed himself over to death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, we've had Laetare Sunday, we've had Mid-Lent Sunday. Tim, how's your Lent going? I must say, I absolutely love the season of Lent. Um, I just find it's probably one of the first seasons um, of the church's liturgical year that I felt like I really participated in. And um, so every time it comes round, although I kind of I'm, I'm not always sure what to do, what to give up, um, it's uh, it still has this sort of anticipation with it um, that I, I really enjoy and really love. I'm I'm enjoying learning new songs at the moment at the the little choir that I am singing in at St Philip Howard here in Cambridge. We're doing quite a bit of plain chant this year, which is which is always quite fun. And um, yes, I'm very much looking forward to the triduum, which has all kinds of exciting things in it. How about you, Nick? Well, for me, I think it's been it's been an odd Lent, and um, I've got to the stage which I, I think I often get to towards the end of Lent. I'm not so much being jaded as thinking of all the missed opportunities, and I just have to come back to those phrases like "new every morning is is my is, is your love." I just have to sort of throw myself on the mercy that this you know Lent is never perfect. Lent is never one of those things you can do and say that's a good job done. So yeah. it's 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 an odd one. I will, I think, be more. I will feel readier for the triduum uh, for Holy Week and the triduum once I've done my Lent confession, which has not yet happened. Yes. Oh, that is such a wonderful reminder. Uh, we had a speaker here on Radio Maria talking about just the grace of making a good confession, and he was encouraging people to really take this time of Lent um, these last few days if they haven't yet to to make a good confession, which I have definitely been inspired to take to heart. So thank you for that little nudge. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we get straight into the liturgy that's coming up and um, what we might reflect on it? Because I think uh, there's lots of lots of things to, to kind of reflect on and 
it would be nice if we if we didn't run out of time as we so often do sure absolutely press on okay so we're going to look firstly at the sunday and um as usual we're going to uh, take a a brief look at the introit for this sunday which says the following give me justice O god and plead my cause against a nation that is faithless from the deceitful and cunning rescue me for you, O God, are my strength. This is taken from Psalm 42. And when we look at it, it feels like a far more typical, typically Lenten introit to some of the things that we've had on the weeks before. Mm. Some of the weeks before have kind of taken us by surprise. There's this call to rejoice that we just had last week. But this one here... I think if you were to just see it standing on its own, you would not be surprised to hear that it was a Lenten introit to the Mass. I quite like the way that it says um, in this translation, from deceitful or from the deceitful and cunning, kind of leaving the um, pronoun out, whether masculine or feminine um, or uh, plural or singular. And it makes it sort of stand out more starkly um, yeah, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on on this. Well, interesting. I I went back to the Latin and was struck by the a phrase that I don't think I've ever noticed before. I, I'm of the the last generation that remembers answering the old mass as a uh, as the standard Sunday and weekday masses, um, and I don't think I'd ever really seen that de gente non sancta. Um, look out for my cause. Plead my cause um, uh, from the non-holy nation mm. and there is a sense there i think of of being surrounded by things that can so often pull us away from god and i i, I really liked mm. that idea the idea of course that they're coming takes us back to where is all this coming from how subtle are the influences on us that that do deceive us all too easily yes so let's have a listen to what the music is going to do with this in the uh, traditional Gregorian chant. Just to say the text again for you in English, it is, Give me justice, O God, and plead my cause against a nation that is faithless. From the deceitful and cunning, rescue me, for you, O God, are my strength. <laughs> Oh. Uh-huh. 
It's a wonderful piece, isn't it? It is lovely, and it's um, it's in the fourth tone. Yeah, tell us about the tell us about the fourth tone. Right. So I I don't have anything sort of technical to tell you from a historical point of view. I just have my own experience of this tone, which was um, singing it uh, when I was. Uh, when I was trying my vocation at the Cistercians in, in Leicester. And um, it tends to be, when when you look at the settings of it in the old Gregorian chant, it looks to me like quite an awkward tone. You're not always sure where it sits. And um, and yet, in the way that we sang it, it, it tended to be the one that everyone, for some reason, fell on when they didn't know which tone to sing. So if we were singing through the, the Psalms, then, and somebody was not sure how to intone it they would always fall back on the the fourth tone for some reason and it had this um rather mournful uh sort of rising and falling where we'd go um la 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 and that sort of going up and going down was uh somehow just the default whether we were in the eighth mode or the second mode or the um, first mode it didn't matter we'd always slip into the fourth mode um so yes it it has something sorrowful about it and i think that it it fits well with this um this first uh this this lenten feel do you have any experience of uh, any thoughts on on the i think mode? i think the thing that uh, surprises me about the fourth tone is how it plays with what we'd think of as a b as a b flat there are those um, bits in Et Fortitudo Mea where, in fact, you know, there's a throne and there's a flat there, which is kind of interesting, but then it's not there in the psalm tone. So it, the, the, the whole composition plays with the notion of there being a, an accidental flattened note there, which may or may not be original. I mean, there's the whole debate there about, about what we can actually see. But it is a, a fascinating piece to hear that... Um, that et fortitudo mea to finish is almost inconsequential. It, it feels like, you know, we, it, it's a kind of throwaway line. We're not getting to a nice solid base where there's more to do, there's more to say. And I think that that's, that's probably one of the reasons why it's hardest to sing. Well, the text, I think, is absolutely beautiful. I've already said I love that, uh, that idea of the, the gente non sancta, mm -hmm. the, the, the goyim, the, 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 uh, non, the, the non-holy people. But then we've got that stuff about eripeme. Now, I know this is, not, um, uh, this is not etymologically sound, but to snatch me away and eripe, that rip, has something um, uh, in English which perhaps it doesn't have in other in other languages. That idea that you are snatched away from your foes, I think, is a is a great one, and it's just you know the whole thing. I think is a is a beautiful piece. Yes, and um, it also resonates with the collect quite beautifully. Yeah. If we go back to to the collect, which was the prayer that we used for the opening of today's episode, um, and it says just to remind you, it the following: By your help, we beseech you, Lord. Our God, may we walk eagerly in that same charity with which, out of love for the world, your son handed himself over to death. The church does not mince its words at this point, and I think that's, that, that's quite important. Um, I'm just wondering, before we move on to the first reading, let's hear an English setting of this introit. Have you got one for us, Tim? Yes, I do. Vindicate me, O oh God. 
and defend my cause against an ungodly nation. From wicked and deceitful men deliver me, for you are my God and my strength. Oh, send forth your light and your truth. It's so wonderful that you can actually find English versions of these and not ones that are just sort of set to a simple psalm tone, but actually try to bring out something of the meaning using the same um, the same tones as the originals yeah. and that was from ccwatershed.org uh, a nice uh, resource to, to, to look into if, if you're wanting to sing these these to, uh, introits in English yeah. now let's let's move on to looking at the readings for this week and getting on to the responsorial psalm um, the first reading is from this is we're looking at the Sunday readings, obviously, is um, from Ezekiel 37, verse 12. And it's that wonderful piece about God opening up the graves, um, a theme of resurrection, resettling his people and their soil, giving them a new spirit. And um, again, these sort of themes of baptism and regeneration are, are so strong there. They are good, aren't they? They're quite, quite amazing. They come from that, um, that post-exilic um, reflowering of, of, the, of the, the prophetic spirit. And I think this is one of the, the best moments in Ezekiel, if I'm honest, that opening the graves. For me, what it does is it talks about coming home. And um, I've recently been reading some work by the American uh, psychologist Brene Brown, and she distinguishes between fitting in and belonging. I think it's very timely as I think about the place of the liturgy in, in our lives and in the tri triduum. Do I conform? Do I go to things because I ought to go to them? Or is this where we belong? Well, here we have a promise that we will belong. And I think that's something that we, you know, we, we should remember. Maybe that longing, that longing to belong is, is what we hear in the Psalms, Tim? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the Psalm for which would come directly after this reading, of course, is Psalm 129. And the response is, with the Lord, there is mercy and fullness of redemption. To hearken back again to my time in um, with the Cistercian monks, this was one of the penitential psalms that was used at the beginning of Lords. And um, once one gets to know a psalm in a certain context, it's hard to sort of take it out of that context. But I find it very interesting that the same psalm can f can function in a different way depending on what is drawn from it. So when a penitential psalm was sung at Lord's, we would just sing it from beginning to end with no antiphon. And um, so the opening line that you would hear was, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. And that would really set the, the theme of that tone, uh, of that psalm. Yeah. Uh, whereas this, uh, using it as a responsorial psalm here is, with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption, which I think uh, kind of puts a different slant on it, if you will. I wonder what your relationship is with the psalm, Nick. Well, it's a bit funny. I didn't go to a Catholic primary school. So when I, I first heard this in the Catholic Comprehensive I went to in Lancashire, I'd never learned it like everyone else. So I, I learned it by joining in, which meant that I staggered from phrase to phrase. 
And uh, the phrase that struck me even then was from the morning watch, even until night, which was the way that the translation that we uh, we used. And it just struck me as such a, a beautiful way of describing uh, the day right from the morning, right into the night. Mm -hmm. As usual, I'm quite curious to see what you are going to do with this on Sunday. Uh, well, I'm afraid I went back to the second tone. I did try the first, um, but what happens is that if you're not careful, the way that English has very weak endings to words sometimes makes some of the more elaborate tones quite hard to sing with. So I ended up with, um, instead of using the first tone, which would have gone, With our Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. And shahahahan seemed a bit awkward. I'm afraid I went back to um, uh, my, my home ground of, of uh, tone two. I can see so, your parishioners rolling their eyes at that point. I'm afraid they might, but at least they know the tune, which I think is important. Yeah. So I went back to the second tone and I liked the angst of that first tone, but I just think that without the music in front of them, that would have been hard for everybody. So this is how it goes. I, the response was, with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. And it works fine all the way through. Yeah. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Oh, let your ears be attentive. To the voice of my pleading. With the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. If you, O Lord, should mark our guilt, Lord, who would survive? But with you is found forgiveness. For this we revere you. With the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. My soul is waiting for the Lord, I count on his word. My soul is longing for the Lord, more than watchers for daybreak. Let the watcher count on daybreak, and Israel on the Lord. With the Lord there is mercy, and fullness of redemption. Because with the Lord there is mercy, and fullness of redemption. Israel, indeed, he will redeem from all its iniquity. With the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. Well, very nice. I like it. <laughs> Great. Um, so, let us move on to the second reading, which is from the Book of Romans. And um, here it has this theme of uh, bodily death and spiritual renewal. And um, do you have any thoughts on this one? Well, I shall be mean here to whoever's preaching for us on Sunday and say I shall be interested to see what they make of it. Because it sits, I think, oddly with the message of the gospel. And I know we're going to hear that um, uh, at length in a moment. But that notion of spiritual uh, spiritual resurrection if you like if in christ in you then your spirit is life itself because you've been justified it doesn't sit for me as easily as the first and the third reading do so i shall be interested to hear what 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 comes of it uh, though i hope i'm not putting too much of a burden on the dominican brethren for, for next sunday <laughs> i think they generally like a challenge let's <laughs> press on to the um gospel sure. before uh, or at least while we do that we're going to play a um, version of this responsorial psalm we were just talking about uh, 
uh, set to music by Avo Pat. Gospel according to John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not with him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 12 miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, and seen what he did, believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Again, one of those amazing um, short story passages of, of Jesus, which, which enriched the, the story of Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of John. Just absolutely astonishing. That, that, that phrase that we hear so often, Jesus wept, the idea that you know, Jesus cried, I've heard so many interpretations. The crowd obviously think it's because of uh, his, uh, because of Lazarus and the loss of Lazarus. But we know from the text before that Jesus does not think Lazarus is gone forever. Mm. And maybe he's weeping at the fact that people just aren't getting it. He's weeping with frustration, as he does when he weeps over Jerusalem. Um, but it is the true man that we see here, and and that that 
that whole gospel is reflected in the preface. It's rare that we get these prefaces that link immediately to the gospel. They do come up in, in the Sundays of Lent. And here's one of them, where we hear the true man weeping for his friend Lazarus. Again, just like last week, we are really absolutely, we can't make sense of John's vision of the passion without understanding this is true God and true man at the same time. It's just an amazing piece. And thank you for reading it, Tim. That was brilliant. Yes, and it's another one of these really long pieces that um, one, you know, there, there are a few of them that come throughout the year and one just hopes that, that you do have enough time to listen to the whole thing. Um, the communion antiphon of this Mass is one that you were particularly excited about in our, in our last uh, episode, so I wonder if you would say a few things about that, Nick. Okay. Um, normally we play a piece of music and then I, I'll tell you, we tell you a bit about it. But what I'd like you to listen to here is there's a very, very plain narrative. Videns Dominus, Flintus, Sorores, Lazari, Ad Monumentum. They're all uh, uh, at that point, um, uh, they're practically all monosyllables. Each note has a syllable to it. It's spoken language with just a little bit of music behind it. And then all of a sudden, um, Jesus, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazare, veni for us, Lazarus, come forth. Mm. And all of a sudden we're into an operatic new voice. And um, it's a shame that it's a radio because as Tim can see, I'm waving my hands around all over the place to, to, to do this. But it's a wonderful piece to listen to, very plain. And then all of a sudden an explosion into Jesus's voice, much higher. And then it sort of takes a, 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 a little while to calm itself down again. I just think it's an amazing piece. <laughs> Lazarus has got this sort of kind of calling mode to it. Can you talk a little bit about the the uh, translation? Like what? Uh, sure. I mean, w what I think we've got here is we've got um, see, see the Lord seeing. So videntes is the is the word that we're given absolutely straight straight away. So viden, videns dominus flentes sorores Lazare. So we it's quite a while before we get to a main verb, which I think also carries it carries you into the the. Um, uh, the narrative and the main verb is he cried lacrimatus est coram judeis he cried in front of the Judeans and cried out Lazarus come out and again it's a very direct text in the Greek in the Latin it's made a lot of I think there and then we get these and he came out um, still tied the still isn't there but you get the, the, the sense by the way that the Latin goes still tied hand and foot who had been dead for four days and that last word mortus is 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 again an emphasis i think on the on the 
the physicality of this whole scene, which has got all sorts of things in it. You know, the, the sister saying, I wouldn't open that tomb. It's going to be smell bad. Uh, he stinketh, I think, is, is the King James version. Yes. It's a very, very basic version. And are we going to get to hear um, uh, some of uh, the Macmillan piece? Yes. Because, again, it's based on the chants. You can hear that same Lazare Veni for us, which, which comes out very strongly in, in the Macmillan piece, too. Well, you pointed out um, to me that this is one of the Macmillan is one of the few composers who's actually tackled this piece, this text. And um, it is a really gripping piece. And I'm glad we have a, a chance to play it.
That was um, a setting of the Fidens Dominus by Sir James Macmillan. When we were listening to it now, I thought some of those parts were, I, I could almost imagine hearing them in a Mulkite rite mass, especially yes. when, that, when that male voice comes in. Um, it's really uh, such a gripping piece. I mean, it, it sort of takes you by surprise in, in the best of ways. <laughs> yes, I think so. We need to speak about the Feast of the Annunciation. But um, before we do that, there's a, a, a feast from the Old Missal that you wanted to speak about, Nick. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a whimsical thing to a certain extent, but I just love the fact that in the old calendar, the day before the Annunciation is the Feast of St. Gabriel. And I just like the idea that today we remember Gabriel being sent. Uh, the feast of, on, that we're going to celebrate on Saturday is, of course, of major significance. But what we've got is here, if you like, um, God saying, OK, Gabriel, I'm going to send you. And so we, we, we remember this important thing of one of the greatest of the archangels coming and, um, you know, receiving his commission to go and uh, go and talk to, to Mary. And I just I just think it's a lovely little piece. All right. And um, you're going to let me play uh, the um, Angelus ad Virginem. Oh, please do. Please do. do. You want I, the Latin version or the English version? Well, I don't know. I mean, the the Latin version that we've got there is is a good one from uh, in lots and lots of ways. I think probably we don't need to hear all of it because it's a verse piece. But if we heard the uh, if we hear the Latin one, then I think uh, we've probably got the original. Although the the English one, if we have the text in front of us, you would see is is quite is earthy and very grounded. Um, it has lots and lots in it, uh, which is also lo worth listening to. But let's hear the Latin. I've talked myself into the Latin there. I can hear right. that. my mind this has a very sort of uh, medieval marian feel to it 
Well, of course, it has a darker side to it. Uh, one of the reasons why I like that particular version is that um, one of the times that we hear of this is from Chaucer, where the rather rakish Nicholas the Clerk of Oxenford is sat in his bedroom playing this on his psalter. Okay. So these nice, you know, pious little songs, a pious pop song, if you like, for, for, from the time, all the while plotting uh, against his landlord's wife. Um, mm. But you know, it's a beautiful piece. It was obviously so well known that Chaucer could just throw in a reference and, and then move on. Mm. But it's a beautiful story, a retelling, a versification of the story of the, the Annunciation and the idea of Mary's... Uh, Doubts, if you like, not Mary's challenge. You know, how is this going to happen? Que virum non cognovi, because I have not known not known man. And then by the end, we're into really, really rejoicing in the in the uh, in the incarnation and in the pregnancy of Mary. In the English version, era warm arisagan, her her womb began to swell. It's a beautiful, beautiful earthed piece of the of genuinely of the incarnation. And now we go on to looking at. The Annunciation itself, having having looked at uh, that old feast of St. Gabriel briefly, uh, briefly, and um, here, of course, this is when the Lord, when God sends the angel Gabriel to visit Mary, and um, she conceives by the Holy Spirit, and this is a celebration of the Incarnation. I find it interesting that the introit for this uh, feast, which is. The Lord said as he entered the world, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, is not set to chant in the um, old missal. So it's something that uh, one needs to pull a different introit if one wants to sing it in um, Gregorian chant. So we're going to listen to one of the older versions and... Um, would you like to introduce this, Nick? Yeah, sure. We're going to listen to the introit Vultum Tuum, which is, uh, the text is from the wedding hymn, Psalm 44. But um, as you listen to it, you'll see that it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece about wanting to seek the face of God. It's about Mary's own search. And I think maybe the, some of the ambiguity around the texts here is to do with the, the change in emphasis um, from this being a feast of Our Lady to a feast of the Incarnation, which is perhaps why we, we've changed these, why the Church has changed these texts around. But it is still an absolutely astonishing piece. We found various versions of it, um, a very straight version, um, uh, which I think is, is a great one. But we've also found one which has sought to reconstruct an earlier uh, performance, an earlier setting of the same piece of music. Um, Tim, over to you to, to, to give us a piece. That's great. Yeah, we'll play the, the latter just because it's sure. a little bit more interesting.
it has this sort of heraldic uh, tone to it, which is like calling. Yes, <laughs> the, uh, sorry, you know, announcement sort of idea. It's lovely, very nice. I, I think one of the things that struck me, I've been reading a, a book which I really am enjoying by David Hiley on Gregorian chant, the Cambridge Introductions to Music, and he talks about the way that the neumes, the the earlier. Um, squiggles over the words, squiggle is the technical term I've been using uh, so far, because that's all they really are. They're just little signs over the words. Um, they're there, the, the word neum, which is what these are, actually refers to the gestures of a, uh, of a, of a leader of a choir. And having been that person that waved their hands in time to Gregorian chant for mm. people in the past, it does say something about the way that that conveyed something of the performance and i think that's what that that uh, that scholar is doing there they're following those neumes to see what would it actually have sounded like in maybe the 10th mm -hmm. century and i think it's a very uh, interesting set of speculations really there yes and uh we'll have this tradition just to come back to uh, some of the other aspects of this feast sure where there will be the the kneeling during the creed um at that part where yeah. we say um, we have et incarnatus est, and that's when we kneel. We used to kneel every Sunday, um, and I like the idea of using the body in prayer like that. And it's also quite powerful to see everybody doing it. Yes. That, that kneeling at the creed is one of those things that I have seen. You know, sometimes it gets forgotten because the way that people sort of go through the the creed at the sort of normal speaking speed doesn't really give it that that time to stop and pause. But there is a, a sense here we need to stop and pause and think that you know we are kneeling in front of this amazing mystery. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really lovely version of the creed on that I, you can find on YouTube from Westminster Cathedral, where there's um, they they sing the uh, one in turn five. I can't remember. Is that creed number three? And then they slip into a palestrina um, for the et incarnatus est, and That's everyone everyone kneels down. It's just so lovely. Yeah. It's um. It's quite nice to, to have a look at that. Um, so let's move on. Well, I'm just wondering, could we now listen to, I think we should listen to the great hymn to Mary, the um, the Ave Maristella, which is, is such a beautiful piece uh, in Latin, the Monstra Tese Matrem, show yourself our mother and then ground us in God's peace, funda nos in pace. It's just an amazing hymn anyway, and it's particularly apt for, for Saturday's feast. And we're going to listen to John Dunstable's setting of this from the 15th century. Sulle <laughs> 
I noticed that this has that uh, that very kind of characteristic medieval uh, play on the word Eve and Ava, changing the name of Eve um, or Ave. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. such a clever idea, isn't yeah. it? That um, uh, Mary is the second Eve, and the Ave reverses the Eva. It's it's yeah. a it's, it's a very clever thing. Yes, um, yeah. Those who don't like puns will just roll their eyes. <laughs> Yeah. But but actually, the liturgy is full of wordplay, and yeah. I think that that's that, that's one of the the great things. It doesn't shy away from those those um, little wry smiles as you look up from your choir book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that's great. You wanted to play uh, one of Bach. I just fancied a little bit of Bach oh. at this point. Is that possible? Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> just uh, uh, he who is mighty has done great things for me. From Bach's magnific- Magnificat, I think is is worth our listening to. Definitely. setting of the Magnificat, which is absolutely beautiful. We go on to speak now about Passion Tide, a few words. Um, and one of the things which I am really looking forward to is the uh, veiling of the statues and the crosses. I would love to hear what your experiences of this are over the years, Nick. Well, sometimes I've just seen the principal crucifix failed. It's just been covered with a large purple cloth, and and that's fine. Um, some churches I do know uh, use it to, to mark a separate season so that we're looking towards Jerusalem. So as, as one preacher once said, said to us, uh, so that we are looking at the text rather than the image. I, it was an interesting challenge to us to do that because actually it's quite arresting to see the, uh, all the images veiled. 
Tim, you've been in churches where all the statues have needed a lot of attention at this point. Is that right? Well, I've had both experiences, actually. I've been in the um, Cistercian church where there basically are no statues. I mean, you just you don't really have much to, to hide. Um, it has that constant austerity. And then uh, for, for quite a while, I used to go to the oratory in Oxford where there was so much that needed veiling that um, they... Um, would ask anyone who was available to um, come and and help that evening to to uh, put as many they they would have actually these massive curtains that would cover the back of the altar which was just filled of um, I don't know what you call that where you have this sort of rack of of statues. Well, it's the Reredos, isn't it? In 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 the old dispensation, the, the, the altar would have been up against that, and you see mm-hmm. that in places like St Albans, very very powerfully, I suppose. But it, it is quite effective in St Aloysius that all of a sudden the church is, is if you like, purpled out. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. It, it is very powerful, and um, and then obviously when it is unveiled, that's also incredibly powerful. Yeah. And um, yeah. It's uh, it's something to look forward to, something to to experience. Um, we are coming to the end of this program, and we have one last piece that we want to play for you. This is um, "Oh Sacred Head, Sore Wounded," and um, while it's playing out, just want to wish all our listeners a very blessed and happy Lent. This has been The Liturgical Looking Glass with myself, uh, Tim Hutchinson. And me, Nick Swarbrick. And um, we do look forward to next week and um, wish everyone a very blessed, very happy Lent.
Pecadores, pecadores 